I invite you, again, take your copy of God's Word and uh, open it once more to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1 this morning. We'll be in verses 14 through 20. Mark 1, 14 through 20. If you're using one of the black Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, I think you'll find that on page 785. And uh, I hope that's right. If it's wrong, give me grace. And uh, make your way to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, uh, verses 14 through 20. Uh, I, I can't think of many things uh, maybe more exciting to parents of young children who are beginning to babble than when their child speaks their first words, and like first words on purpose. There's a lot of anticipation, there's a lot of significance applied. Did she say mama or dada first? And we all know which is more important, mama. First words are really important. First words mark a lot. First words communicate often more than, uh, more, more than they intend. It's also the case that first, the first words of characters in a play, or in our case, in Mark's gospel, the, the subjects of a biography, the first words of a particular character are often full of all sorts of significance. What will Mark record the first words of Jesus to be? Matthew records the first words of Jesus in Matthew 3, verse 15. Let it be so now, Jesus says, at his baptism at the hands of John, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In Luke's gospel, Luke 2, 49, Luke has these words, uh, uh, Jesus speaking these words first in his gospel. When he was a child and his parents left him behind in Jerusalem, he's there left in the temple, they go back and find him. Jesus says to his parents, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 38, the first words of Jesus are a question to two of John's disciples who are trying to figure out who Jesus is. He says, what are you seeking? The first words of Jesus in Mark's Gospel, Mark 1, verse 15, are these, part of our focal text today. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. The first words of Jesus recorded in each of the Gospels gives us some idea as to what, Jesus, as to what part of Jesus' life, what theme of his life and ministry may have been most important for the Gospel writers to communicate. For Matthew, it is the Savior's righteousness as king. For Luke, it's the relationship that Jesus has to the Father and the role of the Holy Spirit in worship and ministry and carrying along Jesus in His church. For John, it is that Jesus is the Word of God who gives life to those who seek Him in faith. For Mark, a declaration of the anticipated kingdom of God and the right response of preparation for the King. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14-20, through 20, Jesus begins His ministry. Jesus now comes on the scene in full force. He, he slides into the, the position of prominence now in Mark's Gospel as John goes sort of off the scene. John the baptizer goes off the scene. And Jesus begins His ministry as a herald, as a proclaimer, proclaiming the Gospel and inviting people to repent and believe and to follow Him. The main idea of Mark 1, 14-20 that we'll explore this morning is this. The call of the gospel is to repent, turn from sin, trust in Jesus, and follow Him in radical obedience. The call of the gospel is to repent, trust Jesus, and follow Him in radical obedience. This morning, I want nothing more for us than to have a clear understanding of the gospel call and to be certain about our genuine response to it. 
I know we've been up and down a lot this morning, but I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as you're comfortably able as we read and follow along in your copy of God's Word, Mark 1, verses 14 through 20. Mark, the ministry partner of Peter the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, continues writing this, his biography of Jesus. Now after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the sea, alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. You may be seated. The call of the gospel is to repent, trust Jesus, and follow him in radical obedience. This section of Scripture breaks into sort of two parts, verses 14 and 15, and then verses 16 through 20. In verses 14 and 50, we see first the king's proclamation, what it is that Jesus is declaring, is heralding. As we open our passage this morning, we find that things have changed dramatically in just a couple of verses. Just earlier, John, the baptizer, cousin of Jesus, was baptizing Jesus in the Jordan, and now, at the start of verse 14, John has been arrested. If you were to skip ahead to Mark chapter 14, you would see that Herod the Tetrarch, the sort of governor over Judea in the time, had John arrested because John was speaking out against Herod's marrying of his wife's, of his brother's wife. So now the spotlight has transferred completely from the prophet, the baptizer, the one who was preparing the way for the Messiah to the one that he was proclaiming, Jesus. And Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, that's what Mark wants us to know who he is, Jesus is not in the most prominent place in Judea as he comes on the scene. He's not in Jerusalem where we might expect the king of the Jews to go. It's the capital city of of, uh, Judea and Israel, wasn't it? He's not there, but instead he's in Galilee to the north, some 70 miles or so among blue-collar, hard-working, often overlooked and underestimated people. And it's here that Jesus begins his ministry. And his ministry begins with a proclamation. That's what verse 14 says. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, calling out, declaring the gospel of God. In verse 15, Mark gives us a nice little one-sentence summary of what Jesus' message was. Certainly verse 15 is not the total content of all that Jesus ever taught, but Mark summarizes it in this one sentence. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We can take the king's proclamation and we can break it down into about three different parts. First, his proclamation declares that it's time. It's time. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. Now, this is quite different from saying it's time for dinner. It's quite different from saying it's bedtime or even it's time for the game to start. Don't worry, it's not till 1.30. It's more like saying this is the moment you've all been waiting for. In the Greek of his day, the language that Mark wrote the gospel in, there were two words for time. One was chronos. Chronos is the measurement of time. Seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. That's chronos. 
There's also a second word for time. It's the word kairos. Kairos is a recognition of the significance of a moment, the reading of a verdict, the birth of a child, the arrival of a king. These are kairos moments. And it is the kairos, it is the moment, the age, the epoch, the the great significance that has found its fullest realization that Jesus is declaring. The moment you've all been waiting for is here. Something big and something long awaited is taking place, Jesus is proclaiming. So the king proclaims it's time. He also says the kingdom of God is close. The phrase the kingdom of God may seem strange to you if you haven't considered it before. So what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God? It's an important question to answer. The simplest way to understand it is in relation relation to God as king and what he rules over. In the Old Testament, the idea of God's kingdom is most often seen in relation to God's covenant people, the people of Israel, and their human kings, David being the, maybe the best example of them in his day. But there are many places in the Old Testament, mostly in the Psalms, uh, but in the prophets as well, that speak of God as king and of the whole universe as his domain. There's a sense in which the idea of God's kingdom expressed through his people, Israel, would one day in the future extend in a real way to the whole earth and all of its peoples as led by not a human king, but a divine king, even God himself. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel the prophet relates a vision that he had of a divine being, one with the appearance of a son of man, who would come to reign over all peoples with an everlasting dominion. As Jesus, the Christ, the way that Mark introduces him to us is Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Christ, a word that means king, means God's anointed. As Jesus, the Christ, arrives on the scene, he is proclaiming that the time has come, the moment you've all been waiting for is here, and the kingdom is near. Meaning, the kingdom is right among you right now. The phrase, wherever the king is, there is the kingdom, I think illustrates well what Jesus is saying here. If Jesus is the Christ, then wherever He goes, as God's Christ, the kingdom of God is represented, right? Because His righteous King, God's righteous King, is there. The good news of the gospel of God is that the King has arrived. So what do you do when the King shows up? You rejoice, right? You throw a party. You have a parade for Him in the streets. Not yet, Jesus says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The message that Jesus proclaims is that when the kingdom is near, those who see it repent and believe. Those who see the king coming, those who recognize who it is that's standing before them, repent and believe. Why does Jesus call people to turn from sin? That's what the word repentance means. And believe the good news that the king is near. Why is that the appropriate response to this very good news that God's King is on the scene? Well, if Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, if He is the righteous divine King that God prophesied and and was helping the people of, uh, of Israel to anticipate all throughout Old Testament times, then when this King comes, He comes in all of the holiness of God. And the holiness of God reveals, friends, it reveals our sin in better than 4K resolution. The holiness of God reveals all of our sin in all of its detailed ugliness. God's kingdom 
ruled over by his righteous, holy king, is a place where true righteousness and holiness are the hallmark of its people. The problem is, this present world is full of sin and sinners who have no place in a righteous kingdom. But the arrival of the kingdom is not bad news. It's gospel. It's good news. It is the Greek word euangelion, which literally means a good word, a good message, a good announcement. The gospel of the kingdom, the arrival of the holy, righteous king of God is not bad news. It's good news. It's good news that the king comes. It's good news of forgiveness and right standing with God for those who will set aside their sinful inclinations, their selfish desires in order to receive the king of glory. The gospel, though, is bad news. It's bad news for those who love their sin and hate the king. The right response, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, is to turn from sin, the sin that makes us enemies of God, enemies of the king, and to trust in the king. Now that's weird. It's one thing to turn from sin, to now be loyal to the coming, thi- to, to the coming king, but what's this business about belief? Belief or faith in the gospel of Mark is the Greek verb. I know I'm using a lot of Greek words, but it's important this morning. It's the Greek word, Tom said amen, he loves it. It's the Greek word pistuo, pistuo. It shows up all over the New Testament. But pistuo, belief, faith, it's more than mere belief that something is true. That's not what Jesus means here when he says believe in the gospel. He doesn't mean believe these words are true, although he he means at least that. The idea of faith in Scripture goes beyond the idea of, of mere, of simple mental assent to something further, to invoke trust by the believing one in the person or the fact believed to be true. I often illustrate it this way, that, that here's a stool. Tim, I'm going to borrow your stool. I'll put it back, I promise. It is one thing for me to say, I believe, I have faith that this stool can hold me up. It seems to be made of a strong metal. It has a sturdy top and it looks like it's all secure. I did see Tim sitting on it earlier, so it probably can hold me, I think. I believe that stool will hold me up. It's one thing to say, I believe that stool can support me. It's another thing entirely for me to do this and sit upon it. When Jesus says, believe in the gospel, he is not saying, stand from a distance and assume things about it to be true. He is saying, believe the gospel, do this, rest your life on it. Right? Believe the good news that the king, the promised king is here. Turn from your sin and place all your faith in this good news that the king has showed up. Shown up. Showed up is not the right grammar. I'm an English major. This is what faith is. It's sitting, it's resting your life, it's entrusting the weight of your life to the promise of the gospel. It's interesting when Jesus says, believe in the gospel, he's actually saying something like, believe into the gospel. Believe on the gospel. It is to go from a state of not trusting into a state of trusting. In, trust, in believing that the stool will hold me up, in expressing my faith that it will carry my weight, I go from saying something about it to actually trusting it. And that's what Jesus is calling everyone who hears the gospel to do. 
In light of the king's proclamation, it's time, the, king, the kingdom is near, repent and believe. I have one point of application for you this morning, before we move to the second point of the sermon, but one point of application, and it is this, whether you're a Christian this morning or not yet, the most important thing you can do in light of the king's proclamation is to understand the gospel clearly. Understand the gospel clearly. Friends, this is a point where we must not be uncertain or unclear about what the gospel is and why it is good news. The gospel is not just that Jesus gives forgiveness of sins to those who ask. It's not merely that. The gospel is the grand announcement that the King of glory, the Holy One of Israel, God's Messiah, the Christ, has come. The King has arrived to set all things right. That's the good news of the gospel. And just as the white witch's frozen enchantment begins to thaw when Aslan is on the move, so also the way into the kingdom is not through brute force. C.S. Lewis understood the gospel so well, and it is so beautifully displayed in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Killing the witch with sword or spear is not the way to install Aslan's kingdom. It's not the way that he comes to bring his kingdom. The way into the kingdom and the way that it is established is through trusting Aslan to take your place on the stone table. All of us is Edmund. Each of us is Edmund. Opposed to the rightful king. In league with the white witch. She demands our blood. And Aslan pays the price for us. Aslan, the rightful king, the son of the emperor over the sea, comes to make things right. And as the rightful king, Jesus enters into a territory that is overrun with wickedness. And though he is a righteous king, he is also a good king. Jesus does not kill every enemy who stands against him. If he were to, not a soul would be left. But instead, Jesus announces terms for citizenship. Turn from your rebellion and believe in God's good news. What good news? Well, precisely the good news that the king is finally home. And better news that what the chief enemy requires, blood for blood, that the king himself has paid that price for all who will receive it. The gospel is this. The king is here. And he has overcome the power of darkness, of sin, of death. He has overcome your rebellion against him at the cost of his own life, laid down freely and raised in victory. And he invites all who will to come into the kingdom. By putting their faith in the King. The gospel is not just Jesus forgives sinners. It's far better than that. It is this, that the King of glory is here. That He's paid the price for your sin. That He welcomes you into loving relationship and full citizenship in His kingdom if you'll turn from your rebellion and rest your life on Him. Friend, understand the gospel clearly. Understand the gospel clearly. It is not just that Jesus dies for sins. It's so much more. He's the God of the universe in human flesh who gave His life in our place, who laid Himself down on the stone table to be bound by the powers of darkness, to be slain for our sin, but who in His glorious victory broke that table in half so that none would ever have to die again if their faith is in Him. The king's proclamation is this. It's time. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe. So friend, understand the gospel clearly. But then here, from verses 16 through 20, the king's invitation. 
The king's proclamation in verses 14 and 15. The king's invitation in verses 16 through 20. It's from this initial message of the gospel that summarizes Jesus' regular preaching ministry that Mark now changes scenes a little bit. He takes us with Jesus to the Sea of Galilee. Now this lake is itself almost a character all its own in the life of Jesus and and throughout the gospels. It, It shows up regularly. The Sea of Galilee was fairly large, I think, as far as lakes go. Now again, I grew up in New Mexico, so my understanding of lake size is, is relative and subjective. It was about seven and a half miles wide by about 12 miles uh, north to south. And uh, the Sea of Galilee has been a fruitful fishing ground for millennium. There's always been fishers there. It's at this lake, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus calls his first disciples and those who will be among his closest circle. We have Simon. Later we come to understand his, uh, Jesus changes his name to Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John, sons of Zebedee. On one occasion, as it would happen, after having passed through that area, proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom, Jesus approaches these two sets of brothers, who he had probably seen before. This is probably not the first time that Jesus is introducing himself to these guys. And he gives them a simple call. It's there for us in verse 17. Follow me, and I will make you fishers. I will make you become fishers of men. Let's look at the two parts of the king's invitation. We saw three parts of his proclamation. We'll see two parts of his invitation. First, follow me. Follow me. The command here is literally something like, you, here behind me. As I imagine in my mind, Jesus walking along the shore of the lake, I don't think he's, he's sauntering through in you know, grand magnificence and pauses in front of Simon and Andrew and and gesticulates in their general direction and says, follow me. That's really not what the language seems to indicate. It's more like Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee and he goes, you guys, come on. That's the call. Y'all, come on. I'll make you fishers of men. And he moves on and he sees James and John does the same thing. It was common. It's interesting. In Jesus' day, It was common for Jewish men who wanted to become a a rabbi, who wanted to become a Jewish teacher, for them to go out and find and adopt a rabbi to teach them, to disciple them, to be their master, to be their instructor. It's interesting. We we see the same uh, sort of pattern playing out in in modern, at least religious, PhD programs. I saw it regularly at seminary. Uh, Interestingly enough, at one point in time, the seminary that I went to went and hired a professor from uh, uh, another Southern Baptist seminary, snatched him and uh, drug him over to the West Coast, uh, and he was a guy who, uh, his name was John Salehammer, and he had a, a wonderful, beautiful understanding of the Old Testament and its connection to Christ. And John Salehammer was the dude, if you wanted to study uh, uh, Old Testament theology through a, a biblical theology framework. And when John Salehammer came to Gateway Seminary, there were a lot of dudes that wanted to come study with John Salehammer because they appreciated the way that he read the Bible, the way that he understood it, the way he studied it, the way that he saw Jesus foreshadowed and, and, and anticipated in the Old Testament. There were a lot of guys that wanted to come study with him. So they moved to California to study with Dr. Salehammer. It'd be the same way in Jesus' day with young men that wanted to become a rabbi. They go find a rabbi they really respect and admire, and they make a case for why they would do well to follow in his footsteps. And so that rabbi would teach his disciples his manner and method of studying and applying the Scriptures, 
so that they would carry on his influence of teaching even after he had died and teach others to do the same. But Jesus' call to the disciples turns that whole idea of rabbi-disciple right over on its head. The disciples don't come to Jesus. He goes to them. And he invites them into a life-changing relationship with him. I hope that you see in Jesus' invitation to these men the consistency with which God regularly just pursues sinners all throughout Scripture. It is not God on a mountaintop saying, if you can prove yourself worthy, I'll let you come to me. No, at every point, it is God stepping down into our mess coming to us. From the moment of the fall in the Garden of Eden to the calling of the disciples, God is not far off in heaven, secluded in secrecy from people who are desperately looking for Him. Not even close. Instead, God pursues Adam and Eve as they hide from Him in the shame of their sin. He hears and sees and knows the plight of His people as slaves in Israel. And He sends them a deliverer in Moses. It's God who speaks through the prophets to disobedient Israel, calling them to repent and be saved from the consequences of their sin. It's God who sends His Son at just the right time, the King of the cosmos, to draw near to sinners, to serve the weak, to die for the needy. His Son, Jesus, too, doesn't wait for those who prove themselves worthy to make their way to Him. No, He pursues them. He calls to them. He invites them. You, let's go. Come with me. It's the first part of the king's invitation. Follow me. But let's notice that the king's invitation is not just to play follow the leader. It's an invitation to a transformation. That'll preach a little bit, won't it? Jesus' call is follow me, and then the second half of it, be changed by me. I will make you become fishers of men. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation to be changed by Jesus. To go from being one thing to being something else. And for these first disciples, they'll go from bringing in fish for their livelihood now to bringing men and women to Jesus to find real and lasting life with the King Himself. Notice that Jesus calls them to be changed by Him into what He wants them to be. Follow Me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. The disciples, friends, don't get a say in what Jesus will make them to be. The disciples don't get a say in what will be the end result of their following Him. They are following Him on His agenda. It's for Him to decide. It's for Him to do. It is for those who hear His call to consider whether it is worth going after Him. To learn from Him. Is it worth it to submit to Him? Is it worth my time to be utterly transformed at the deepest level of my heart and soul by Him? This is a question that every supposed disciple of Jesus must ask. Somebody could ask, which is better, to be a fisherman or to be made to become a fisher of men? I suppose the answer all depends on your priorities, doesn't it? We could ask the same question this way, which is better, to be independently and self-sufficiently wealthy and well-off, life on your own terms, or to be utterly dependent on the only sufficient king of creation to make you into what he wants you to be? Which is better? And I ask that as an honest question. This call to follow Jesus and to be changed by Him is not a cheap call. It's an expensive one. It's a costly one. The call of discipleship after Jesus is costly. For these fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, it requires them giving up their livelihood as fishermen. 
and maintaining the family business. But in both cases, these two sets of brothers leave their nets behind. They leave their father behind to follow Jesus. Theirs is a radical discipleship. It's foregoing the benefits of the world for the blessing of becoming what Jesus would make them. The call to follow Jesus is a hard call to answer when we understand it clearly. It's a call to see our sin as a source of all the danger and death that we see around us and to repent of it. It calls us to see that we are not kings and queens of our own domain, but that Christ is king over all. It calls us to set aside our agenda for the king's intentions. It bids us to come and die to self so that we might find real life in Jesus. Later in Mark's Gospel, Mark 8, verses 34 to 37, we read these words. Jesus calling to the crowd, or calling the, excuse me, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, what does he just ask the disciples to do? Follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Following Jesus is costly, but it'll gain you everything. It'll gain you everything. Discipleship, coming after Jesus, answering that call, leaving behind everything that hinders to walk after Him, to learn from Him, to submit to Him, to be changed by Him, is expensive, and it is not easy. It is not easy. Brothers and sisters, the promise of of an easy discipleship that just follow Jesus and your life will be awesome is a lie from the pit of hell. Oh, it will be good. Your life will be abundant. But not in the ways of the world. Not in the way that the world sees things. You, You won't follow Jesus and become rich and famous. If you follow Jesus, you you might lose your family. You might lose your job. It might just become really awkward at every family dinner, at every work meeting, because you're a follower of Jesus and many aren't. Your, Your life may just be exceedingly awkward in all of its relationships. You may not die for your faith, but if you live somewhere in the Middle East or in East Asia, perhaps you would. The promise of the gospel, the promise of discipleship is not that your life will get better or easier. In many ways, it will get much, much harder. But in following Jesus, we get the kind and quality of life that only God can give to those who follow Him. Abundant relationship with your Creator. An understanding of what it is uh, our deepest purpose and design for living all in Christ. If that's worth it to you, follow Jesus. If you'd rather just have money, Friends, stick to the stock market and whatever other plan that you've made for your life. Discipleship is not easy. But understand this morning, there is no life in Jesus or as a part of His kingdom apart from it. The cost of our discipleship is nothing, though, in comparison to the value of God's extravagant grace in giving His Son to die for our sin. To be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, understand me this morning, requires so much more than just having an affinity for Jesus. It is so much deeper than just being around other Christians and Jesus-flavored weekly habits. 
That is not discipleship. Showing up to church every Sunday is not the definition of discipleship. Following Jesus and being changed by Him into what He wants you to be. That is, now prayerfully, in a Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching, Bible-endearing church like ours, you will be, if you're here week by week, pressed to follow Jesus, to be changed by Him. But your mere attendance, friends, is not discipleship. Discipleship is to be wholly submitted to Jesus as King. It's not just, I believe in Jesus. It is, I have trusted Him with my life. You hear the difference? Discipleship is not just, I think Jesus could save me. I believe He lived and died and rose again. Discipleship is saying, I have nowhere to go but Jesus. My sin is too heavy to lift on my own. What I deserve for my rebellion against God is a a price I cannot pay. I have nowhere to go but Jesus and nowhere else in this world or the next I would rather be but in Jesus. That's faith. That's discipleship. That's following Jesus. It is to be wholly submitted to Him as King with all your trust in Him to save you. With all your joy to be changed by Him into someone you would never be if left to your own desires. God's wonderful grace is costly, but it brings the blessing of a life that cannot be had through easy believism and cheap grace. The German pastor and theologian during the Nazi reign in the 1930s and 40s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, opposed to the extremism and homicidal tendencies of Adolf Hitler started an underground seminary in those days and pastored a good many men and women, helping men to grow and to mature disciples of Jesus and faithful gospel leaders in a very difficult time. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who would ultimately be hanged for his trouble in opposing Hitler, wrote these words. He said, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in a field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's a pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will, uh, to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets. And follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly, it's expensive because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the one true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of His Son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. When Jesus the King arrives on the scene proclaiming the good news 
that the time has come. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the gospel. When he goes to those two sets of brothers and says, you, after me, let's go. I'm going to turn you into something that you could never be on your own. He is calling all of us to respond to the gospel, the good news that the king is here, and to take on the cost of discipleship, of leaving behind livelihood, family if necessary, anything that would hinder us from being changed by by Jesus into what He would want us to be. The call of discipleship is a hard one. It is worth it, but it's a hard one. And all of us, in hearing the call to follow Jesus, must answer the call of the gospel decisively. I've encouraged you this morning to understand the gospel message clearly. Now I want for you this morning to answer the call of the gospel decisively. Jesus' call is clear. It is hard. It may seem extreme, but it is clear. Come after me. I'll make you what I want you to be. This morning, friend, whether you're a Christian of many decades or not yet a believer, I encourage you to consider if this is true of you. Have you followed Jesus? Have you given your life to Him in faith? And have you followed after Him Are you being transformed by Him to become what He wants you to be? Now, I'm not even asking if you'd call yourself a Christian this morning. Sometimes using language like that just confuses things more. What I'm asking all of you this morning is have you turned to Christ with faith in Him to save you? Have you turned to Christ with a desire to become what He would make of you? Come hell or high water or anything else, that might prevent you from so doing? Have you given your life to Jesus to be made holy, to be made faithful, to be made obedient, to be made gracious, to be made truthful, to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God? Have you come to Jesus that He might give you a love for righteousness, a desire to do what is right from a heart that has been changed by the holiness of God? Have you come to follow after Jesus, walking humbly before and with the King of glory? That's my question. Not would you call yourself a Christian. What I want to know is are you following Jesus? And if not, what's preventing you today? What's preventing you from following Jesus and becoming what He would make of you? Pride? Greed? Fear? Confusion? If you just don't know yet what it is that Christ is really calling you to, My invitation to you this morning is to answer the call of the gospel decisively. Whether you've been following Jesus for 60 years or you haven't started following him yet, answer the call decisively. Perhaps you've been following Jesus for some time, but you've, or thought you were, you've slacked off a good bit. You've you've stopped being submitted to that changing process and you need to start following him in earnest again. Make this morning the morning of getting back on track, submitting to Jesus all over again. Maybe you've never begun that. Maybe you've never known the hope of salvation, being forgiven of your sins, of having a relationship with the King of the cosmos through Jesus Christ. I invite you to trust Him this morning. Hear the call of Jesus. The time is full. The moment you've been waiting for, the King of the cosmos is here and He invites you into relationship with Him by turning from sin and trusting in His Son and following after Him to be all that He would make you to be. Jesus' first words in Mark are the call of the gospel. 
And the call of the gospel is to repent, trust the king, and follow him in radical obedience. Abandon your nets and go after him. The question left to us this morning is this. Will we? Will we? Understanding the gospel clearly, will we answer the call of the gospel decisively? In a moment, I'll pray. We'll sing a song of response before we're dismissed to small group Bible studies. And during that time of uh, song of response, it's meant to be a, a song for all of us to worship and consider and ask the Lord to apply to our hearts the truths of His Word. But if this morning you need to make a decisive decision to follow Jesus, I would invite you, I'll be standing here at the front responding in worship myself, but if you need to respond to that call to follow Jesus, you need prayer for a particular matter, come and grab my arm. Let's, let's talk and pray just briefly and maybe set up a time to talk more about what following Jesus is, about what answering the call of the gospel really looks like, about what it means to be saved and to become a disciple of the King. However it is that the Lord is calling you to respond today, answer decisively and with faithful obedience. He, he desires and asks nothing less of us. Let's pray together.